Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. So we have all had the sort of friend who has come to us in a time of transition, a time of significance in their life, and come to us for advice. And they, they come to us and they, they lay out the situation and they say, what should I do? And we, being good friends, maybe we sort of talk them through it. Maybe we make a little T-chart on a piece of paper and say, well, here's the pros, here's the cons. Right? And we sort of walk them through it. But all of us have also had a friend that has done this. Come to us for that advice. Listen, take in everything that we've said and went, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And then gone to another one of our friends, fishing for someone who would tell them what they want to hear, right? We've all known someone else who has done that, who has sort of gone fishing for advice and kept fishing until they got what? The, the advice that they wanted, right? It, we've probably been that friend ourselves too, right? We, we've had a situation where it's like, well, what should I do? Should I make this foolish decision or not? And we go to somebody and they say, no, that's a foolish decision. And we sort of keep searching around until we find that friend who has no qualms telling us, yes, you should totally buy that TV. Even though it's two inches bigger than the one that you've got, you need it. You deserve it. Yes. And then when somebody, well, well, Jonathan told me I deserve that new TV. I was just going by what Jonathan told me. Right? We've all been fishing for that. The story that we're going to look at this morning is very much an entire group of people sort of shopping for that same thing when it comes to God. Sort of shopping for someone to tell them what they want to hear. But as we get started this morning, there's two sort of pieces of background that we need to know in order to understand this passage of the Bible well. Many of us didn't grow up in a church, uh, or some of us who did don't remember what we've learned when we were growing up. And so there's two stories that play a big part in this. The first is the big picture of the Bible. This is something, uh, for those of you guys who follow us on Facebook, that I talked about in our five-minute Friday this week, that the story of the Bible, a big sort of over arching narrative that's going on is this idea of God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's sort of what we had in Eden, right? You had God's people at the time, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule, under his authority. And then we messed that up. And then the whole rest of the Bible is this sort of march of God trying to bring his people back to his place. Trying to bring his people back under his authority. And what's interesting is the way that the Bible ends is the same way, right? We're left with a city, a garden city, the new heavens and new earth, where we have God's people in God's place living under God's rule. And so that's sort of the, the bookends at the beginning and end of the Bible. And it all sort of follows through that. And, and much of the Old Testament is God trying to give us a little picture, a little taste, trying to give the people of Israel just a little bit of what they were missing when we left Eden. And so this is a theme that recurs throughout the Old Testament. And we see this in bright detail when the people of Israel come out of the land of Egypt. They come out of the land of Egypt and some, some bad stuff happens. They make some terrible decisions. They end up wandering around for 40 years. But after those 40 years are done, they're going to go into the promised land. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send spies into the promised land and see what happens. And the spies come back and they say, 
everybody in this land are giants. All of them are CrossFitters. <laughs> they all eat paleo. They're enormous. The, the land is gorgeous. It's got all kinds of fruits and seeds and nuts, and it's beautiful to farm on, but the people are too big. They're too well-equipped. All of their cities have walls. And God says, bingo. Exactly. You are a bunch of ragtag ex-slaves who have been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and I'm going to go in and I'm going to help you clean out all of these people in this land and give this land to you. But you're going to learn a couple things in the process. The first thing you're going to learn in the process of this happening is that you can't do it on your own. You're right. They're bigger than you. They're stronger than you. Their cities have walls. You have no walls. They have houses that are made of wood and stone and brick. You have tents. They have swords. You have something slightly more sophisticated than sticks. And I want you to, to win. I want you to go in there. In fact, the weapons that they use in their first victory are trumpets. They defeat an entire city using trumpets. Not the way we would do this, but God is teaching them that they need to rely on him and act. And not only that, he's teaching them that only he can do it. Okay, so we have these two things, right? Set, set these in your mind because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a big deal. You're going to see why in a second. God's people and God's place under God's rule and relying on God to take the land that he has given you. Because here's what happens. When the people of Israel go into the land, about half of the tribes do a good job. Another half of the tribes don't do such a great job. And then there's this one tribe, this one tribe called Dan. And Dan goes in and God says, here's what I want you to do. If you go with me into battle, I am going to take care of it for you. I am going to defeat these enemies that you can't defeat. And Dan comes into the part of the land where Joshua said, this is your area. Your area will be between this river and that, between this mountain and that thing. That's your land. They come in and they look around and they go, yeah, those people are big. So they go to the cities of the people that are already there. And it's like, hey, would it be cool if we crashed like just outside the city and like set up another city here and we'll like farm the land with you? Will that be okay? And the other people were like, well, yeah, I mean, better than what's happening to all of our neighbors when they're all getting killed. So, yeah, you can totally stay here. And so the people of Dan never conquered the land that they were given. And as time went on, these people started forcing them out of the home that God had given them. And so we come to our text this morning. We come to Judges 18, and we're going to see sort of how that all ends. So what I'd like to do, I'm going to read the entirety of Judges 18 aloud. I'd like you to stand up. You can follow along if you have a Bible with you, Judges 18. If you don't, you can find it on our app, or you can find it here on these screens. So let's read Judges 18. This is what the Word of God says. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and Eshtuel, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. And when they were there by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. This is the story we talked about last week. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to him, This is how Micah dealt with me. 
He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to him, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtuel, and they said to their brothers, What do you report? They said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands. The place where there is... I'm sorry. A place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtuel, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On account, this place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed out from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone out to scout the country of Laish said to the brothers, Do you know that in these houses... There are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image. Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered in and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with the weapons of war. And when these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It's better for you to be a priest of a house of one man or to be the priest of a tribe and the clan in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod, the household gods, the carved image, and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you? Did you come against us with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away? What do I have left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life in the lives of your households. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests which belonged to him, and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far away from Sidon. They had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named it the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan... 
the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the household of God was in Shiloh. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So on its face, this is kind of a funny story. You have all sorts of sort of sad humor going on because you have the people of Dan who never took the land that they should have taken, who never took the part of Israel that God had given to them. And so they're, now they're on the lookout. And they're on the lookout for a new place to go. And so they, just send, they send five spies out to check out the land. And we're, we're meant to have those alarm bells, right, of the spies that, are going, that went into Israel. Right? This is supposed to go, oh, this is supposed to look the same way, except it's sort of the negative, right, the sort of opposite photo of what's going on. Because they go around, and as they're wandering around, they come into this house, and they hear the voice of the Levite that we met last week. This was a man who was supposed to be a priest of God. He couldn't find a job. He wandered into a house in North Israel, and the guy said, hey, I've got a God that I made, and I need a priest. How about I just give you some money, give you some nice clothes, give you a place to live. You could be my priest for these gods. And Micah, the Levite, said, okay, best job offer I've had. I'll totally be a priest to those gods. That's fine with me. And they hear this guy, and they, they recognize him by his accent. They say, hey, you're not from around here, right? You say things funny. You have a Midwestern accent, don't you know? <laughs> and so they say, they say this, and they say, what are you doing here? And, and Micah, the Levite, telegraphs what kind of person he is. He goes, let me tell you how I got here. Micah gave me money. And then I became his priest. It's almost as if you can hear him saying, Micah gave me money, and then I became his priest. And the people said, oh, well, tell us, how is our journey going to go? And he says, oh, your journey is going to go great, right? Micah is not a good dude, right? He is clearly, absolutely for sale. Right? And he is telegraphing this. He just, you can kind of just see him, you, you can almost hear him making this gesture every time he talks. Right? Yes, I will totally come and be the priest in your house. Micah gave me money. Right? And so they go and they find this unsuspecting town. And they say, you know what? It's not defended well. It's all the people are unsuspecting. We could totally wipe these people out. Which is interesting because what did the spies that we talked about just a minute ago when they came into Israel the first time say? The people are huge. They're giants, right? They're way stronger than us. What do these people find? Ah, let's find the weakest city we can and then we'll take it and it will be our city. So they go back, they get all their friends, they get the whole tribe and they load up and they start moving up the coast, heading on their way to this place. And on their way, the five men say, oh, by the way, we saw some gods in that house right there. And I think one of the funniest things in this passage is when they turn to the 600 men and say, consider what you will do. Right? It's almost as if you're like, you know, hey, friend, I know we're at this restaurant, but there's a $100 bill on the ground. Consider what you will do. 
It, it, it feels like the setup to one of those like TV shows where you don't know, you know, the, like hidden camera TV shows. Like, what would you do in this scenario? The, the five minutes say, there are gods in this place and they're unsuspecting. What are you going to do? And the 600 men kind of go, oh, I know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go get those. So they go and get them. And Mike is standing there and he goes, hey, guys, what are you doing? And the people of Dan say, shut your mouth. Put your hand over your mouth. And they say, listen, we have a better deal for you. What's better, to be the priest and making money from one guy or be the priest and making money from a whole tribe of people? You decide. And it literally said, did you hear what it said that Dan did? Or I'm sorry, not Dan, that Micah the Levite did? He was happy. His heart was glad. Oh, this is a much better scenario. I'll go do that. And so he does. And then they go up and they tear down and burn down this city. And it becomes their city. And we're sort of told two things at the end of the story, which are sort of the tragic punches. One, they set up all of these gods that they had stolen from Micah, and that became their temple, and it existed as long as the temple existed in Israel. And the second thing is, we're told something that the author had been hiding from us up to this point. We're told who Micah is. Micah is the grandson of Moses. That Moses. The Moses that if you've heard anything about the Bible, you've probably heard a little bit about. His grandson is this greedy, money priest. This is a tragedy. And it's a tragedy on all sorts of levels. But one of the things that we see about this tragedy is it's a misunderstanding of God's people, God's place, and God's authority. Because the people of Dan refused to live in the place that God had given them. God said, here's your place. It's kind of on the east coast of Israel. This is the place that Dan is supposed to live. And they said, yeah, but that's hard. The people there are bigger than us. We don't feel like it. We're going to go find some unsuspecting people whose town is unprotected, and we're just going to beat them up. And take their stuff. I know you told us that you would go with us into battle, but hard pass. We're going to go do what we want to do. And so they moved. But not only that, they refused God's rule. God said, I will be your God and here is where I want you to go. And what do they do? They go looking for whoever will tell them what they want to hear. Because when they ask Micah, should we go and and kick out the people of Laish? Should this be where we live now? What does Micah say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's totally a great idea, guys. I am 100% behind this idea. And so is God. What were they doing? They, They were shopping, right? They were advice shopping. They said, oh, what what should we do? God says we should live here in in this difficult place. We should have to trust him to to kick these people out of their city. You know what? Let me see if I can... Can I get a second opinion on that? Right? It reminds me of the episode of Friends where, where Joey had kidney stones. Right? And he goes to the doctor and says, What is it, doc? And the doc says, Kidney stones. And he says, Is there a second opinion or something? He says, Kidney stones? Right? Right? No, it's kidney stones, right? The people of Israel are shopping. They're looking for second opinions until somebody will tell them what they want to hear. And not only that, 
they're not acting like God's people. The people of Laish were unsuspecting, and in many ways, uh, the Bible paints them as innocent victims of what's going on here. This is a big contrast to, to what we've talked about before with the people who lived in Israel that God was using the Israelites to push out, that were a brutal people who sacrificed their children, uh, who, who committed all sorts of atrocities against themselves. These people in Laish are not those people. And so instead of doing what God says, instead of living where God says, instead of living the way God says and in the place God says, they decide to go out and do their own thing. They had a fundamental misunderstanding of who God was, and they wanted to seek a God who would do whatever they want. As I've been thinking about this week, I was amazed how similar this story is to the story of Palm Sunday. The story of Palm Sunday is that the week before Jesus was crucified, he came into Israel and came into the city of Jerusalem. And he came in, fascinatingly, through the same route that, that Joshua led the people of Israel into the land the first time. They, they came in, and their first battle was the battle of Jericho. And what route does Jesus take to get to Jerusalem? He takes the road that goes through Jericho. And the people of Israel say, ah, this is it. This is the one that is coming. He's going to fix all of our problems. He's going to make everything better. And so as he got to Jerusalem, they started taking off their coats. They started waving palm branches and putting them on the ground saying, this is the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. But it's fascinating that as these crowds of people that were gathered for a big holiday in Jerusalem were shouting and singing and saying, Jesus is the one that comes in the name of the Lord, were nowhere to be found four days later when he was crucified. Some of them may have been the, some pe- the same people who were screaming, crucify him. We're not sure. But all we know is that these crowds that were saying, that's our guy, suddenly disappeared. Why? Why did these crowds that were very excited about Jesus on Palm Sunday absolutely disappear within four days? Because they had the same problem as the Danites. They were looking for a God who would do what they want. They thought that God is going to fix all of our problems and all of their problems had the same name. The Romans. They thought, you know what? Jesus is going to come to town. He's going to lead a revolution. We're going to kill all of the Romans. And all of us are going to live happily ever after. So Jesus gets into town. And who does he chase around with whips? Does he chase the Roman guards around with whips? Or does he chase people out of the temple with whips? You see, what the people of Israel fundamentally misunderstood is they thought that we must be God's people because of who our parents are. Because our parents were believers, because our parents were people who were God's chosen people, that means we must be. right? And even our passage in Judges reminds us that that's not the case. Because who was Captain Money? Or should I say Reverend Money? It was Moses' grandson. Just because our parents have faith does not mean that we automatically get credit for that. But the people of Israel thought that was the case, and they thought that they should be able to that Jesus should kick the Romans out on account of that. 
They also thought that Jesus cared more about Jerusalem than he did about anywhere else. And yet, when he goes into the temple the day after Palm Sunday and clears everybody out, what does he say? He says, this house should be a house of prayer for the nations. You guys think it's all about Jerusalem. I'm telling you, it's all about everywhere. That this is not a religion that is limited to one race, that's limited to one people group, that's limited to one class. This is for everyone, everywhere, always. And they had a bad sense of of God's authority. Because they thought that what Jesus was going to do was set up a political revolution. Was set up a place where he was going to kick out the Romans. And he was going to be king by the strength of his hand. So we have the people of Dan in our story of Judges. And we have the people in Jerusalem on the day of Palm Sunday. And they're both making this fundamental mistake of wanting God to do what they want Him to do. But what's interesting is we read this passage, we can also hear echoes of ourselves. Because how often do we do the same thing? How often do I do this? See, because some of us think that we are God's people because of our family. This is is an easy mistake to make, uh, especially in a country that is still slightly a majority Christian country. We begin to think, well, because of my heritage, because of where I'm from, because of who my parents are, I'm a Christian based on that. Now, among the the demographics that many of us in this room are, that's not as common, but here's what is common. I mistakenly think that I am one of God's people because of how good I am. I think that I'm a part of God's people based on my behavior. Well, I was really nice this week. Well, I avoided this sin that I've struggled with for years. Well, I, I totally, and we begin to think, that our relationship to God is dependent on our behavior. When we do that, we're making God out to be who we want Him to be. We're trying to control Him, just like the Danites. We're trying to get Him to do what we want, just like the people of Israel on Palm Sunday. And the second thing, sort of, if we keep with that sort of people, place, and authority, is this idea. We think that the place of God is not that significant. It's very uh, common to begin to downplay the role of the church in our lives. Uh, One of the uh, most significant sort of growing segments of population when it comes to sort of religion is this idea. I'm spiritual but not religious. Right? I, I, I believe in God, uh, but I don't, I don't associate with any sort of organized religion. And, and on the one hand, we understand why, right? If you want to talk about churches that have been hurtful to us, most of us can probably pull up a story in our own minds of a church that's hurt us. And churches have not had it all together. And yet, what's really fascinating is that God says the church is not an add-on to the life of Christianity. It's not bonus. It's not something nice that you can put on. But rather... It's actually a fundamental part of what it means to be a Christian. This grates on us. This grates on us more than we care to admit. Because I'm okay with Jesus. 
But when it comes to like, I need to like be around Jesus's people. I don't always love that. Let me say that again, because I think you need to hear a pastor say that because I'm not talking for you right now. I'm talking for me too. I'm totally okay with Jesus. I'm actually not, but that's another story. But I get upset, and I don't always love to be around Jesus' people, the church. And yet God says it's important for me. That's one of the reasons when, when Ashley and Tiffany and Jenna and Olivia get up here at the beginning of every service and they sort of go through the, the three things that make City Church, City Church, one of the things they say every week is, we believe in real community. That church is not something we check off a list and say, I did church. That we just sort of go, yeah, 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 I totally went to church, I attended, and everything was fine. Church is meant to be the community where we are known and know others. Where we can be honest about, yeah, no, I didn't do so great this week. Remember that thing I told you that I was struggling with? Blew it. Bad. And the church is a place where we can come together and share that with one another. Because let's be honest, we don't have any place in our lives where we can be truly honest. There is no longer a venue in society for letting down our masks. We are always on. We are always striving. We are always trying to prove that we matter, prove that we can fit in, prove that we're worth it. And the church is supposed to be a community that is a radical contrast to that. And it matters. The last thing is, is God's authority. We oftentimes want to sort of morph God into what we want. We want an advice shop. So we go to one church, and one church says, these set of things are totally okay. And we go, oh, I like that place. They say that my stuff is okay, and those other people's junk, that's the bad stuff, right? Or maybe our set of problems, our set of brokenness is different, and so we come over here and we go, oh, no, no, these people over here, these are the ones that I like. And here's the hard part. For some of us, we don't really believe that God has the authority to tell us what to do. Maybe we believe in God. But the idea that he can tell us that this is right and this is wrong grates on us. Probably more than that whole church thing that I just talked about. When I say I struggle with Jesus, this is the realm that I was talking about. Because not only do some of us say, I don't want that authority, some of us may accept that authority. Say, say, you know what? God can tell me what's right and wrong, except here's the thing, I don't care. Because I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do me. Right? Some of us, well, let's be honest, more of us than we care to admit know that God says, this is not what I want. Know that God says, this is not okay. And what, what do we do? What do I do? I know that this is wrong. I'm about to do it. My conscience says, uh, hey, bro. And I say, nope, I want it. I'm going to take it. It's mine. I deserve this. 
I've had a bad week. This is what I deserve. I've had a hard time. This is what I need. I'm going to do what I want to do. And what we do is we sort of shop around until we find a God who will just let us do what we want. The people of Israel, the people of Dan, mistakenly thought that God was going to fix their situation when they found the other gods. The people in Jerusalem mistakenly thought that Jesus was going to fix their situation with regards to the Romans. We think the God that we want is a God who's just going to make everything in our life nice. That's going to make everything in our life happy. We can do whatever we want. There are no consequences for our actions. Everything is fine. And I get, to, I get to get anything I want in return. We want a heavenly sugar daddy, not God. Be honest. How many times have you treated and thought of God that way? And we think that Jesus is going to come and just fix our bad situations. But what we're going to learn over this week, over the week that we call Holy Week or Passion Week, what we're going to learn throughout this week is that that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to heal our estrangement from God's people, from God's place, and from God's authority. You see, all of us have walked away from all three of those. And what Jesus was doing on the cross, what we celebrate this weekend, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, what Jesus was doing in that moment was bridging the divide that we have made. He was healing the wounds that we have cut on ourselves. He is taking all of that on himself and saying, I will bring you back to God's people. I will reteach you what it means to live under authority. And I'm going to take you to a place and create a place for you where you can be open and honest. And the way he accomplishes this is through his death on the cross. And so when we're willing to admit that we want to God shop, when we want to shop for a God who gives us whatever we want, when we begin to admit that that's what we do far often, far more often than we care to admit, and we begin to trust and say, Jesus, I need you. I throw myself on the mercy of your court, not because I'm good, because I need someone else in my place. When we begin to do that, it begins to change us in new ways. It begins to change us in fresh ways because we begin to see that Jesus is not a God who is separate from our suffering. He's a God who enters into it. That is something that we're going to see vividly on Thursday night as we look at the death of Jesus. That he walks with us through our suffering. doesn't mean he fixes it, but it does mean he's with us. And that he's not an authority who just stands above us without mercy, but rather as authority who forgives us when we go across the line. And not only that, empowers us to be different. Empowers us to live in community in a new way with one another. You see, all of us are guilty of this God shopping, and yet all of us can be forgiven of it by the blood of Jesus.